0: Now, before we start this episode of The Explainer, we wanted to let you know that it was recorded ahead of the latest announcement that Israel would begin daily pauses in its military activity in northern Gaza. This is to allow people to flee the area. Now, the announcement was made Thursday by the White House, and it's on the back of calls by US President Joe Biden for humanitarian pauses. And so on with the latest episode. Welcome to the Journal that I Easy Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, Israel and Gaza. What are the big questions that need to be answered? It's been just over a month since Hamas launched a brutal and murderous attack on Israel, killing more than 1400 people and kidnapping almost 250 others. Israel's response has been merciless and unrelenting, with over 10,000 Palestinians killed and over 25,000 wounded in weeks of bombing and blockades, prompting leaders across the world to call for a ceasefire and sparking accusations of war crimes. So far, those calls for a ceasefire have fallen on deaf ears, and the UN chief Antonio Guterres has now dubbed Gaza a graveyard for children as tens of thousands struggle without food, medical care and basic provisions. So while we continue to witness the horrors of war in the Middle East, we felt it was time to take a broader look at the instability and conflicts that have existed for some time between Israel and Palestine. How did Israel and the Palestinian people come to this point? What is the background to this protracted cycle of violence and oppression? And who are the major players in this war? Now, to look at all of this today, we're joined by our very own assistant news editor, Stephen McDermott, who was also in Israel recently during and Mihal Martin's visit. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem at all. Firstly, Stephen, this conflict, look, it's nothing new and it's been going on for so long and it can be a struggle, I think, to follow it. So could you firstly for our listeners take us right back to the historical basics here?
1: Yeah, I'll try to do this as quickly as possible because it's a long conflict. Um, a lot of it roots back to the foundation of the state of Israel in 1948, and um, the UN passed Resolution 181 uh, to partition the land that was um, in Israel and Palestine into two states: so one, uh, which is now Israel, for Jewish people, and another Arab state for Palestinians. At the basis of that was, um, you know, Jews originally from uh, the land of Israel in, in biblical times and um, left during the Roman Empire in the first century AD after the destruction of the Second Temple. There was ongoing tensions between Jewish people and, and the local Palestinian population that um led to this creation of two separate states and then a, a war of independence in nineteen forty eight that's been bubbling away then over the years so in 1967 there was a six-day war which was between Israel and uh, a bunch of Arab states around them Israel won that uh, and then occupied Gaza and the West Bank as well as like a territory in Syria known as the Golan Heights and in Egypt uh, at the Sinai six years later in 1973 there was the Yom Kippur war again this is a huge surprise attack it has resonance for what's happening today Arab states again attacked Israel uh, Israel came out a little bit better than that but it was this hugely uh, defining moment in Israeli history as well where they kind of adopted this stance on uh, what they what they felt their Arab neighbors were going to try to do to them. So um, 1993 then, um, there was talks of peace and the two-state solution. The Oslo Accords were signed between the Palestinian Authority, people remember Yasser Arafat, um, and uh, the then Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin of Israel, who was later assassinated because uh, he was by a Jewish extremist didn't feel that they should be giving in to Palestinians. And that started uh, suicide bomb attacks then by Hamas as well, who also didn't feel that Palestinians should be giving it to uh, the Israeli side. And there have been various kind of talks of peace since they haven't really come anywhere. So the most recent of those were in 2013 and 2014, but um, we haven't seen much of those. And then specifically in Gaza as well, uh, Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip in the mid-2000s and have been sort of an ongoing battle with Israel since then.
0: And I mean, that's probably the quickest way you could give a synopsis of the modern history of this conflict, isn't it? And I know we could go back further and further you know hundreds of years back but this is what we're looking at let's say in the last century or so and it is important really to acknowledge that Israel as a separate state didn't exist let's say 200 years ago so how did the establishment come about this is all on the back of the hideous crimes committed against the Jewish people in world war 2 yeah it's
1: actually kind of goes back a little bit before that as well like i mentioned there's zionism at the end of the victorian era um so there was this movement that it was there was other hideous crimes going on against jewish people at that time so I mentioned, obviously, the Jews were originally from Israel in biblical times, and they were expelled uh, in the first century AD by the Romans and kind of were very much seen or had been seen certainly as a like a wandering people who were dispossessed from their land. Um, there was a huge growth in anti-Semitism in the 19th century. Um, there was pogroms in the old Russian Empire, um, most prominently in what's now Kizaneu, the capital of Moldova. At one point, the Jews um, were looking for a homeland in uh, Uganda, um, not Israel. They kind of thought, OK, well, we need to get somewhere. And there was some talks to, to get there. But that was sort of abandoned in favour of going back to the historical homeland uh, within Israel. Initial kind of emigration to Israel among Jewish people kind of happened around that time. And then this just accelerated during World War II as well. There was various commitments given that the Jews would be given a homeland within Israel by um, Western governments. And this sort of accelerated then through the the 30s. And as we saw during the Holocaust, a lot of people felt homeless, or stateless rather, and they sort of felt that they didn't have a country to go back to because, you know, the countries that sort of like you know betrayed them or betrayed their people and there was also this worry of a loss of identity by integrating with the west so like it was about you know pogroms and the holocaust as well but a lot of jews were worried about like the secularization of becoming jewish and within the west and uh, that they would lose their identities as well so Ultimately, like, Israel is a place where Jewish people feel that they can feel safe, um, having not been welcomed historically in other countries, having wandered for the guts of 2,000 years as well, that this is now a place that they can call their homeland at last and not feel persecution.
0: And let's have a look then, Stephen, at Hamas, because this is the name of a group that we're hearing about a lot. How did they come to rule over Palestine? Who exactly are they?
1: So Hamas is an acronym for the Islamic resistance movement. They are a militant movement that rules over Gaza, um, not the West Bank, which is a separate territory. It's also Palestinian territory, but it's a different part, kind of more to the north and east of um, the location where Israel is. Um, Hamas have a majority uh, in Gaza. They sort of came to power in the mid-2000s through kind of Palestinian council elections. Um, They beat Fatah, who were the political wing of the Palestinian Authority that does rule over the West Bank at that stage, and that was uh, a
0: big surprise at the time. I it, think they there was such a militant group.
1: They are, yeah. Um, they were founded in 1987 after the first Intifada, uh, which is a big uprising of Palestinians to express their rage and ongoing frustration um, with the situation in Israel and Palestine. Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005, and there was about eight thousand settlers there at the time. And Israel very, very controversially domestically withdrew um the palestinian authority then ruled for two years and held elections and then hamas came to power and immediately went to war so they removed fatah from the gaza strip they also kidnapped an israeli soldier which was hugely controversial that led to been in a situation essentially ever since the blockade of gaza they're designated as a terrorist group as well this is important to say like by israel the us the uk and the eu which is posing a lot of difficulties um when i was over there in september one of the the Diplomats over there said to us that, you know, Ireland is, gives a lot of aid to say Palestine, but we can only give it to the Palestinian Authority, the West Bank, because this group is des- designated as a, um, a terrorist group. You know, they're the ones who rule everything and there's worries that what they would do with the money, whether they would fund that for um, weaponry and stuff as well. Importantly, they also have links to Iran. So Iran supposedly supplies these guys with weapons and financial support. Some of their leadership are based in Qatar. And one of their main aims is they've specifically said like they, they don't agree with any of this two-state solution stuff or any of the you know other live in peace and harmony with Israelis. They really want Israel gone out of that area.
0: And of course, Iran in recent weeks saying they have not been supporting Hamas in the lead up to this current conflict. And I think that's probably a question for another day. But if you look, Stephen, at the Israeli government's view of the Palestinian people leading up to October of this year. What has that been like?
1: In a word, bad. Um, It's the most right-wing government in Israeli history. Um, It was elected last year. So Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who a lot of people will be familiar with, he's the most tenured um, or the longest tenured prime minister in Israeli history. He's ruled for most of the most of the last 15 years.
0: And a controversial figure.
1: He's incredibly controversial. There's other domestic things that are going on in Israel that we won't even get to hear, but um, he formed a government with some far-right parties who are incredibly anti-Palestine, is the way to say it. Like, they think that all of the land that is currently occupied by Israel should be Israeli territory, that Palestinians should not have a state. Uh, Netanyahu himself uh, previously said that there'll never be a Palestinian state as long as he's in charge. He's kind of wrote back on that a little bit since, but um, we've seen continued expansion of illegal Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. In July of this year alone, Israel approved 5,500 homes in the West Bank, which is contrary to international law, according to you know, loads of human rights bodies and the UN themselves.
0: It's probably important to mention that when we talk about settlers in the West Bank, this isn't just about people coming with their car load and building a new home on land that nobody lives on. This is about evicting Palestinian communities it, to set up homes.
1: Yeah, it's essentially a huge transfer of land from Palestine to Israel, you know, inadvertently. Um, you know, these settlers are Essentially encouraged by the government to go and move there uh, to form little towns and villages, um, Palestinians are restricted from building homes. Uh, there, it's this concept known as forcible transfer, where it's kind of like intimidating or coercing through force Palestinians to leave the West Bank, um, and so Israel, Israeli settlers can essentially just set up there and like live in Palestine, which is you know not seen as a good thing in terms of providing a peace solution.
0: And you did mention this a couple of times already. So what exactly is the two-state solution? Because anyone, when you mentioned Yasser Arafat and other leaders, let's say, in the last 20 odd years, all we would have heard about was a two-state solution. This is what the US was pushing for. What exactly was that?
1: Yeah, like think back to what I was saying about the history of this conflict. You know, at the very start of this was a UN resolution to partition Israel and Palestine into one state for Jewish people and another state for Arabs. And it's essentially based on that. There was a proposal to resolve the conflict in the early 90s when the 1993 Oslo Accords were signed um, to establish two states for two people based on what were called pre-1967 borders. So after, again, Israel's 1967 war with other Arab countries, they occupied the Gaza Strip and they occupied the West Bank. And both of those things were seen to be where a future Palestinian state could be it would potentially entail land swaps. Part of the problem with the two-state solution is that the land between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank is not contiguous, so they're not joined up. So it would essentially have to involve some way to join those two territories together. we obviously got this problem now where, as I said, there's 700,000 settlers uh, from Israel living in the West Bank as well. So are Israeli people going to live in that land as well? So Essentially that's it in a nutshell. It's been supported ostensibly by, you know, the likes of the US, um, the European Union, Palestine themselves, and, and Israel obviously agreed to it back in the nineteen nineties and there's been very little movement on it since, but that has held up as the model of how we can resolve this.
0: And some analysts saying that it has really dropped off the radar in the Biden and Trump years too that it wasn't put to the fore that it maybe perhaps should have and are there any other viable alternatives on the table when it comes to any peace agreements?
1: Yeah so viable is the key word there because people actually say that the two-state solution itself isn't viable because I mentioned those Israeli settlers. There's another huge issue which is Palestinian refugees you know there are millions and millions i think about six million palestinian refugees in the world a huge huge issue for palestine and part of this whole conflict is their right of return so all the people who were uh, forcibly removed from their homes and kicked off off their land and out of their towns and villages from 1948 onwards the palestinians want them to be allowed to come back to palestine israel has so far rejected this but the idea that within this small part of land in Gaza and the West Bank for six million Palestinian refugees, as many like refugee camps in the likes of Jordan and Syria for them to be able to return, is not really seen as potentially viable. So what is seen as kind of creeping in in the last couple of years, a, a solution that's not very popular either among Palestinians, among obviously Israelis, or, um, you know, a lot of people say that this might not work, but it's actually a one state solution. So instead of it being two states for two people, it's essentially one state for both people
0: which sounds utterly counterintuitive given what you know to be the case in the region so how did that work there's a
1: quite a couple of ways people have looked at this so like you know you could have a normal i mean you, you think of northern ireland say and people often point to northern ireland as kind of like providing a roadmap here where you have it's not quite the same as you know two people like largely culturally they're the same but you have sort of two conflicting cultures we'll say um So you could have it that way. You could just have a, I hate to say like a normal state, but you know what I mean? Like a a state that works.
0: Functioning democratic state. Exactly.
1: You know, where where it's not like specifically a Jewish Jewish state or not specifically an Arab state. You could also have an idea like, um, it's called like a transnational state. So kind of how Switzerland or the US works where, you know, you have these kind of little confederations or in Switzerland, you have these cantons and essentially you would have two whatever, federations or cantons, one Arabic, one Jewish, and they would, you know, the each individual canton would manage administrative things, kind of like county councils or city councils work here. And then the broader things like defence, currency, infrastructure, all those much, much bigger things would be part of kind of one state as well. So some see it as inevitable based on, like I said, the refugee problem or the, the settlers in the West Bank and how the land would not be able to be transferred between them, at, you know, but... None of this is just on the table yet. It's kind of all an idea at the moment.
0: I think, Stephen, if we were having this conversation maybe two weeks before October 7th, it may have sounded like something that was potentially a possibility for the future. But after October 7th, when we see what's been happening, it just seems utterly unattainable, doesn't it? For our listeners, can you just remind us what exactly happened on the 7th of October?
1: So I remember waking up that morning and seeing news alerts on my phone about rocket attacks being fired from Gaza into southern Israel. And that's not that new a thing, um, or it's certainly not that surprising a thing. Like we've seen this happen so many times over the last couple of decades between Hamas and Israel. But the really shocking thing that happened very, very soon after that was about 2,000 Hamas milit- militants managed to break the Israeli blockade, which is something that you know just was seen as not being able to be done. This is part of the reason Israel had a blockade on Gaza.
0: And we're talking about Gaza which incidentally was was described as an open air prison. This is not something you can just move in and out of with any ease whatsoever. Yeah
1: and very shocking. Um, you know there was lots and lots of footage coming out of innocent civilians being killed being taken hostage. Um, about 1400 or so civilians were killed. Um, there was a couple of a couple of Israel Defence Forces members and policemen involved in that as well. Um, they attacked a music festival they attacked uh, homes in these places that are known as kibbutzes which are kind of small um, communal societies in the south of israel Um survivors have said that babies children teenagers mm-hmm. elderly people uh, were shot dead stabbed mutilated with axes and um, those accounts have been backed up by testimonies from first responders soldiers and volunteers Um so there's obviously 1400 people killed but there was around 240 israelis and foreigners you know from really, really young babies up to people who were in their 80s, kidnapped and taken to Gaza as well. Most of those are still there. Hamas named the attacks the Operation Al Aqsa Flood after um, a Jerusalem mosque. So there's a mosque in Jerusalem that's um, seen as this. It's like one of the holiest sites. I think it's the third holiest site in Islam, but it's also the site of the Temple Mount, which is a really holy site in Judaism as well. There's been kind of tensions bubbling away over this for the last year or so because of like things like access to the site and who can get to it and who can't and. On the Palestinian side, it's been seen that they've been a little bit like intimidated or had their kind of access to this mosque shut off over the last year or so. So Hamas, as a kind of revenge, named this attack, which they said, which it said that they've been preparing for over a year based on this mosque. So was like said, like I said, Operation Al aqsa Flood. October seventh is considered the bloodiest in Israel's history. It's the first time that there's been an attack on this scale on Israel's territory since it was founded 75 years ago, and it's seen as the deadliest day for Jews. Since the Holocaust, it was some really, really shocking scenes and I'm sure people will have seen the footage.
0: As you say, Stephen, a barbaric attack by Hamas that day and Israel's response then?
1: It was initially one of the shock, you know, um, I think they were so surprised. This also took place on a um, Jewish holiday. Um, so it really, really took them by surprise. They were not expecting this. It took a while for Netanyahu even to emerge. Like, you think a leader in that situation would be straight out and condemning attacks and making statements. But it took hours and hours and people were actually wondering what was going on or what he was going to say.
0: And it has to be said, like, Israel is not to be trifled with militarily, politically, financially. It's so well resourced in this side of things.
1: It is. And I mentioned Netanyahu, like, he's known as Mr. Security. He's actually facing real trouble at home now because this happened. Like, it's going to define in many ways his political career because he was known as Mr. Security and he allowed this to happen on his watch. In the days afterwards, um, the country's security cabinet voted to undertake a series of actions to bring about what they essentially were saying is the destruction of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which are another kind of Islamic militant group that are operating in Gaza as well. They've declared a heightened state of preparedness for a potential conflict. Um, You know, a unity government was formed um, with the opposition um, to prepare for this war with Hamas. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu, when he did emerge, said it's going to be a long and difficult war. And since then, we've seen Israel bombarding Gaza with airstrikes pretty much daily, you know, almost a week after the initial attack. Um, They told all civilians in northern Gaza to move south, which was seen as a really, really, really controversial move because how do you get that many people to move in such a short space of time? Um, It's one of the most densely populated places on earth.
0: Exactly. Telling that number of people to move, it's a very small area. What size is Gaza? It's very, very hard for us to realise just how small an area it is.
1: It's about the size of County Louth, which is obviously Ireland's smallest county, you know, and there are... 2.3 million people living in there, you know, so more than the population of Dublin within that space.
0: And the humanitarian crisis on the ground now for the Palestinian people, we've seen thousands killed, shelling, bombing. What are they facing there?
1: It's really, really awful what we're hearing. Um, It's quite hard to know as well because um, not many humanitarian people have been allowed in or, or third parties are finally allowing some journalists in from outside at the moment. But the Gaz and Health Ministry says there's been more than 10,500 deaths. You know, that agency is controlled by Hamas, but it's actually important to say that the numbers that they have tallied on deaths during conflicts with Israel before have pretty much lined up with what the UN and the WHO say, and even the Palestinian Authority who don't get on with Hamas uh, say they're happy that there's a good faith effort there to tally the dead. We're hearing reports of people still trapped under rubble. You know, one hugely important aspect of this is that you know, around half of the population of Gaza are children. So um, it's not just that, I mean, obviously it's awful that all people are dying, but like so many, so many children are being, you know, orphaned, left without families, left trapped under the rubble. It's hard to find food. There's reports of children begging for water. Hospitals are running out of supplies. Um, People are having to operate essentially without things like anesthetic. Hospitals are running out of fuel. So that means that they can't, you know, power themselves to keep certain machines on. It's been criticised by all these international NGOs like Doctors Without Borders, the World Health Organisation, you know, even the Office of the United States High Commissioner for Human Rights. So um, we did have seen, you know, some aid trucks let in. Famously, people remember Dr. Mike Ryan of the WHO who was out a lot during COVID. um, He said when 28 trucks are let in, he said it should be at least 2,000 and they've been let in kind of via Egypt, which is where the southern border of Gaza is. So it's quite grim and it's quite bleak.
0: So why then... This is happening in 2023. Why are more countries not calling for a ceasefire? We're hearing about this pause. They're they're stopping short of calling for a ceasefire. It's
1: kind of a controversial question um, and it depends on your outlook. But I guess the main thing that people see is like, it's, you know, Israel is defending itself here against Hamas. Um, so again, you think of those attacks came as such a surprise on October the 7th that people feel that, well, Israel has a right to root these guys out and destroy them and make sure that this doesn't happen again. So it's just Israel is is fighting back and a ceasefire would be the end of it and you know people say if there's a ceasefire it will just allow Hamas to grow again and there's something like this that could happen in the future Um, but, you know there's widespread support generally for Israel among the international community there's obviously a lot of um dissent in that view and people say what's happening in Gaza is terrible and Palestinians shouldn't be suffering like this but it's also hard to get bodies to agree so you know, the EU were very quick out of the blocks. Um, There was a big controversy involving Ursula von der Leyen tweeting a picture of the Israeli flag on Berlimont, which is the European Commission building in Brussels. Um, And people saw okay that is just overwhelming support for Israel. The US have obviously historically supported Israel as well. So yeah, like I said, look, even within the EU, like Ireland would be seen as quite pro-Palestine, if not the most pro-Palestine place, but we're at odds with a huge amount of the EU as well. So it's actually hard to get a resolution to say, okay, this should be a ceasefire, this should stop. And uh, yeah, like I said, it all goes back to what people think Israel should be allowed to do in rooting out Hamas.
0: Now, in the first maybe two, three weeks, very little seemed to be happening diplomatically, didn't it? And we've had US Secretary of State now, Anthony Blinken, touring the region recently, but throughout this, the US has been steadfast in its support of Israel, which you mentioned just there. But why is that? Why the blanket support here?
1: It boils down to kind of economic and historic ties. So, um, After World War II, we said 1948, Israel was founded. Harry Truman was the US president. He was the first one to recognize Israel when it was was created. It was kind of a Cold War thing going on there as well. So this part of the Middle East is actually quite strategic. It has like oil reserves as a strategic waterway nearby. Like I think the Suez Canal is quite near the southern border of Israel as well. So Truman felt it was kind of in the US and the West's interest to show support for israel to keep them on side to not let them be taken under the influence of russia as well even going back before that like coming out of world war one like israel and palestine the areas that they used to be used to be part of the ottoman empire and the ottoman empire broke up after world war one and it's kind of in a way where this mess sort of comes from but um the british and french were the ones who were controlling that area as well so you know the british controlled iraq and what was then the mandate of palestine and then the french controlled syria and lebanon But after World War II, both those countries were incredibly weak and it could no longer kind of control it. So the U.S. sort of stepped in and took control. I know Israel obviously declared its independence, and it wasn't that strong until really that 1967 war where Israel was attacked by five or six of its Arab neighbors. And from then on, really, the U.S. has kind of like had this huge amount of support. Again, there's also a sort of modern, even after the Cold War, a modern geopolitical slant to it where um, the U.S. is seen as you know being a broker of peace deals between the likes of Israel and Egypt and other Arab countries as well and really wants Israel to kind of be a bulwark of um, democracy against places like Iran which is obviously a historic enemy as well so there's a few things going on there.
0: So the US finally coming into play in all of this in a geopolitical sense what are they doing to try and bring the situation under control then now?
1: Again it's controversial it kind of depends on you know what your view is whether you know by supporting israel are they helping to bring it under control by essentially in the more medium or long term bring about the defeat of hamas or are they kind of stirring things up or egging israel on or anything so biden came out initially and said you know we stand with israel you know he said we will make sure israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens defend itself and respond to this attack so really really rowing in behind uh from the start um congress in the us is likely to authorize additional aid as well um and more recently, the U.S. has been actually trying to act as an intermediary. So there's peace talks ongoing with Qatar, who we're seeing as kind of more aligned to the Palestinian side and Israel as well. Um, Anthony Blinken has been over there. He's the U.S. Secretary of State. He's been over there twice, most recently, uh, last week. Uh, and kind of to prevent a hotter war from heating up as well, They sent two. Uh, of its largest aircraft carriers to the eastern Mediterranean, just as a little bit of a deterrent, just to say well, look
0: does, just how much of a proxy war could we be looking at here, like who else is involved?
1: You know we okay. talked about the potential links between Hamas and Iran earlier, like our Hamas being egged on by Iran here. One would say you know that they're not, it's a better palestinian um you know uh national self realization and nothing more, but others have said, well, is it to do with Iran as well um To the north of Israel is Lebanon as well, where Hezbollah are active. That's, you know, another militant group that are backed by Iran. So there's speculation that they could go into a war on two fronts and that, again, that Iran might be the influence there. But the other big context of this was before this all kicked off, there was talk kind of being assisted, we'll say, by the U.S. of a normalisation of ties between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Saudi Arabia are pretty much the biggest player in the Arab world. They're... Sunni Muslims and they clash with Iran because Iran are Shia Muslims, um, but they're seen as kind of rivals in this sense, and normalisation between Israel and Saudi Arabia would be seen as a huge blow to Palestinian determination, you know, like, there's kind of a divide and conquer thing going on here, if you're seeing it from a Palestinian perspective, that all of the Arab countries initially from the Israeli War of Independence were seen as like very much backing Palestine. And then one by one, you know, Egypt normalised ties and Jordan normalised ties. And for Saudi Arabia to do so as well, it would be seen as another blow. So there's kind of talk here of would Iran or another country have, have kind of come in and undermined that? And is, like, is that the proxy war that's essentially going on? Is it between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Or?
0: And you mentioned Hezbollah, and I don't think anyone wants to see this particular group get involved. What is the situation there?
1: It's kind of an ongoing skirmishes between... Hezbollah in Lebanon and Israel and, like kind of since the 1980s um geographically speaking Lebanon is to the north of Israel so uh, Hezbollah are a- very active in the south of that country so essentially to the northern israeli border and that it could be the launch pad for a regional war that would draw in someone like Iran or then the US like i said those two aircraft carriers are there and if it, you know if the US see that something kicks off or they then get involved as well um Hezbollah are an Iranian backed armed group there have been exchanges of rocket fire between them already as this conflict has gone on. Um, so some countries suspended flights there You know when this looked like it might heat up a little bit more. At one stage, the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland told all Irish citizens to leave Lebanon out of fear that you know there would be a conflict. And we should we mention
0: in. that members of the Irish Defence Forces are in the area too.
1: Yeah, of course as well. So that's kind of a huge, again, it's why it would be of specific domestic interest to us as well. But yeah, we, we haven't seen that escalate as of yet. But Again, it's bubbling away in the background.
0: And back to Ireland, we, as you mentioned earlier, Stephen, we do have strong ties to Palestine. But how is that received across the world? Some people not taking it too well.
1: Yeah, from the Israeli perspective, they think that Ireland is certainly not a friend, maybe not an enemy, but certainly not a friend of Israel. You know, we do have ties, you know, and it has to be said that, you know, when we've been on to people in Israel um about articles before like they do emphasise you know the ties between the two countries and that they've recently started flights between Tel Aviv and Dublin and but, we
0: have diplomatic ties we have an Israeli ambassador in Ireland and, and, and vice versa
1: yeah exactly so like it's not like it's completely and utterly strained it used to be worse like we didn't open an embassy here until quite late on but you know those ties have been growing from a Palestinian point of view though um Ireland's support for them is seen as like very very positive like at one stage a couple of years ago the Irish flag was flown over City Hall in Ramallah which is kind of the it's not the capital capital of the West Bank but it's like one of the main cities in the West Bank as well. So again Ireland's position is kind of viewed different ways in different countries but we're certainly seen as an outlier in the EU was having such strong support for, for Palestine.
0: And some people then accusing Ireland in its support of the Palestinian people of being anti-Semitic. What essentially are they saying here?
1: So anti-semitism is like prejudice or hatred of Jews or Jewish people. Um in terms of broader anti-semitism itself and what that is, like this is not specifically like a thing that's about Israel, it's about Jewish people. Um it's existed to some degree wherever Jews have settled in history, you know. It's until like the present day you see it a lot at the moment and certain quarters and conversations about what's happening in Israel. Um, it was obviously a huge part of Nazi beliefs and uh, the atrocities that they committed during the Holocaust. You know, we hear claims that, you know, Jews are all powerful or they're motivated by mo- nothing but money. And these are all untrue. It should be absolutely clear. Like, you know, one of the more pernicious ones has been this idea of like blood libel, where Jewish people would want to kill Christians to get their blood for ritual sacrifices and all. It's all absolute, complete rubbish.
0: Now, it probably warrants making a bit of a distinction here, doesn't it, between Israel, the people of Israel, people of Jewish faith, Jewish culture, Jewish religion, and all of that, and the difference between that and Zionism and people who say they're a Zionist. What exactly is Zionism?
1: When we were talking at the start of the podcast, I was saying how Zionism was sort of like a foundation that led to the establishment of the Jewish state. So it was a nationalist movement that emerged in the late nineteenth century, as I said, to enable that you know homeland for the Jewish people. They Believe in the application of the biblical concept of Jews from kind of the Old Testament, who were the Jews of the chosen people, and they were going to the promised land that was in Israel, and um, the belief that modern Jews are essentially primary descendants of those biblical Jews and who were, you know, booted out in the first century AD. It all kind of emerges from this guy. He's an Austro-Hungarian journalist uh, at the end of the nineteenth century, Theodor Herzl, who wrote this book called *The Judenstadt*, which in German means the Jewish state. Um, Herzl considered anti-Semitism to be like this feature of all societies around the world where Jews are present and uh, he sort of felt that in order for Jews to be able to live peacefully and prosper, you know, and without prejudice that they would have to establish their homeland then. Um, It is actually kind of important to note as well that, like, Zionism didn't always uh, envisage, you know, an antagonism or like the displacement of Palestinian people within Israel. You know, they saw when Hertz was writing, at least anyway, that Jews would move to Israel and live, you know, in cooperation and peace and harmony with Palestinian people as well. And it was only through the development of, you know, essentially the Zionist project of the establishment of this homeland and the antagonism the Palestinians felt towards them at that time that this relationship of, again, antagonism sort of developed and we have the conflict as it is today.
0: So then what's behind the more general claims of anti-Semitism from Israel and do they hold up?
1: Again, it's a, it's kind of a philosophical perspective thing you know so it's important to note that like not all jewish people are zionists but those who are zionists and particularly the state of israel believe that antagonism or hatred of the state of israel or you know questioning its its existence as a jewish state itself is anti-semitic because you know it, it is a jewish state so you're against the idea of this thing that they feel jews should have for themselves so they have kind of tried to merge criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism as well, but also things like so one of the big things you hear from a pro-Palestinian point of view is this thing called the boycott divest sanctions movement. So to give listeners a bit of perspective, back in the 1980s when South Africa was an apartheid state, people started boycotting South African goods and it was seen as this cultural way to exert pressure on South Africa to essentially dismantle apartheid and create a more equal society for all of its citizens. And organizes the boycott divest sanctions movement are essentially trying to do the same with israel and the occupied territories and palestinian um self-nationhood here as well israel says that that in itself is anti-semitic and there's questions about that there's a big group called the anti defamation league in the u.s who who sort of try to support that as well israel has tried to have the boycott divest sanctions movement banned in a number of countries the other thing we hear a lot in the current context of the conflict is um the from the river to the sea chant so there's this chant that is said a lot of protests like not just in ireland but in other english-speaking countries as well that from the river to the sea palestine will be free and there's a lot of jewish people and zionists and people in israel say that this is anti-semitic as well because it essentially means that the from the river to the sea refers the river refers to the jordan river which is the eastern border kind of of israel and palestine and then the sea is the mediterranean sea so it's encompassing all the territory of israel and palestine and people see this as you know Palestinians are going to uprise and they're going to remove israel and and, and kind of kill all israeli people and kind of you know this intimidation factor that they felt ahead of october 7 that kind of came to pass you know when hamas broke through and started massacring israeli people you know that that, that they're kind of afraid that this might happen so when they hear people chanting that at protests they feel that that is what is happening now it should also be pointed out that like i would say a lot of people might not feel themselves that they have that anti-semitic point of view you know we, we've seen this with songs here recently you know whether it's you know the zombie thing during the rugby world cup or probably not it's
0: all about your perception isn't yeah, it yeah i was you're... gonna say
1: pro- pro- probably not the the best analogy here but like the ooh of the raster for people to say oh i'm just singing this song and what does it mean so like again maybe ignorance what people think might not necessarily be an excuse for anti-Semitism or or not you know but but I think a lot of people like it's essentially something that rhymes at protests as well you know I think that might be one of the reasons people people chanted but again it's not really for me to say that it's not anti-Semitic either you know.
0: It's it's a real sign of just what this conflict in itself is doing in the region and globally Stephen, when you look at what's happened since the 7th of October, how close are we coming now to a wider regional war? We've talked about the potential for a proxy war and all of the vested interests. And does it seem that we're feeling this time that we're at a very dangerous moment, I think?
1: It's kind of hard to say, you know, um, it's certainly dangerous in for the Palestinians, you know, people living in Gaza. Um, is it dangerous for Israel? Some would say no, but could you see you know, uh, Lebanon getting involved. I don't necessarily think so at this juncture. You know, um, but like there's potential for a two-front war. Then that Israel has to fight as well, and then does Iran get involved? You know, how will it, how much is it going to use those proxies like Hamas and Hezbollah in that that you know skirmishes could develop slowly and lead to an unintended war. Like you know, we like at this juncture again. Like I said, like it doesn't necessarily seem like it's going to develop into a much wider war now, but. At, You know, on the 6th of October, we didn't see that this situation between Hamas and Israel was going to bubble up either. So, um, again, the US are sort of trying to deter that at the moment. Um, There's interesting things going on with Egypt as well, where Egypt are, because of the historic thing that's been going on with the Palestinian refugees, you know, where Israel conducts a a huge war on this scale and Palestinian refugees are forced out of somewhere where they're living and end up in refugee camps in another country. Like, Egypt are really, really reluctant to let that happen. It would be... uh, like kind of a bit of trouble for them domestically but also uh, say for example right you you know the southern gate of Gaza Rafa where the border with Egypt is is opened up and you you know I'm not going to say all 2.3 million but like half the population of Gaza decide they want to get out of there and they go to Egypt you know would that be seen then as Israeli ethnic cleansing and would Arab countries feel that they have to act on that then as well so there's a lot of variables in here of course you know um, at the moment I would say it's seems to be just between Israel and Hamas and Israel and Gaza, but who knows how it could develop.
0: And finally, Stephen, look, this conflict is quite horrific in so many ways. And there's a lot of troubling violence, just stressful content emerging on social media in particular. And of course, that pales in comparison to what the people are living through on the ground there. But how can people look after themselves when they're being exposed to all of this online?
1: Um, It's really difficult. And I know people want to be informed and as up to date as possible. uh, But I think you know too much content will have an effect it will make you know just burn you out essentially you know i would say like i don't know if you want to like limit your time every day that you're spending online or like just go to the news don't necessarily try to follow it all minute by minute on social media because there is as i say there's so much content and there's like an ongoing breaking story um i would say just avoid where you can if there's a little filter online that says this content is, is sensitive or, um, you know, it shows graphic images, I would say, like, just avoid that as much as possible. You know, um, there are researchers who work in these fields who say, you know, that, that this thing called vicarious trauma where you think you're fine looking at the image that it builds up over time and you don't know how it you know, might affect you later on. So I would just say to be wary, I would say this is not to say don't follow it online, you know, like you could absolutely do that if you want. But if you're going to do that, I would say, yeah, just 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 limit your intake of it and give yourself a break.
0: That's it. Uh, You can only help in in the only way you can help is maybe just keep an eye on the charities who are doing work as it goes. And uh, yeah, look, it's difficult and it would be amazing if there was some sort of global effort now to really get to some peaceful resolution. And we'll keep a close eye on that. Thank you so much, Stephen, for breaking it all down for us today. It's really appreciated. That's no problem at all. Thanks again to Stephen McDermott for joining us today. You've been listening to The Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.